Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. It's a new year, and we have a new Congress being sworn in, and it's the most diverse congressional class in history. Nancy Pelosi, she has regained the speakership of the House. She was the first woman to do it and regain it. And it's setting up this big showdown with the administration. She's going to be the big counterbalance to President Trump. We spoke to Steph Kite. She's a reporter for Axios to talk about all this new diversity and what's on the big agenda for Democrats this year. People are saying that they're getting ready a lot of investigations. The first order of business, obviously, is to end the government shutdown. So we started off by talking to Steph about the new Congress, how it's changed, and all the new women that are there. One of the, the biggest points that we've seen, one of the biggest changes is in the number of women who are now in Congress. They make up about almost a quarter of the total Congress members. 25 women will be in the Senate and more than 100 will be in the House now. And the majority of those women are Democratic, but there are a few Republicans as well. So I think that's one of the biggest changes that we've seen in this new Congress. But we also have the first two Muslim women in Congress. We have the first two Native American women in Congress. We have the first Palestinian-American woman. We have the first Somali-American woman. There are so many firsts in this Congress and really does. We have a much richer, more diverse Congress today than we did at any other point in the past. Yeah, I mean, it's great. And we had been talking about this leading up into the midterms. And as returns were coming in, the wave of women, obviously, you mentioned that a lot of them are Democratic members. There are a lot of Republican women that are part of the Congress as well. But let's talk a little bit about Nancy Pelosi. She was sworn in as Speaker of the House, the first woman to hold that position and then regain that position. She is going to be the big check in the government right now against the president. Democrats are trying to oppose a lot of the things that he is proposing. So she is going to be the big check in Congress. She really is. A lot of people are looking ahead to 2019 and 2020 as a Pelosi-Trump match, where we're going to see Pelosi kind of leading the charge against the Trump administration's policies and also as the House investigates Trump and his administration for multiple things and anything from the Russia-related investigations to the use of funds to Trump's own work with his business while also being the president of the United States. So I think we're going to see this kind of match off between the two of them over and over and over again. And I think just starting right now when we're looking at the government shutdown and whether they are able to reach a compromise on this, Pelosi has not backed down from her stance that the House should not sign on to any bills that give the president the funding that he's asking for the walls. I think that's just the first example of many that we're going to see. There was a lot of interesting optics that were going on uh, as she was retaining the speakership. Tony Bennett was in the in mm-hmm. the gallery. Mickey Hart from The Grateful Dead was there. There was a lot of mm-hmm. standing ovations given as they were introducing her. So, I mean, everybody's very excited, but she had her dissenters as well. People, there was a lot of incoming freshmen that didn't vote for her. They voted for a lot of other members, but overall she 
got 220 votes, well over the number that she needed, but she did have those people that did not vote for her. There were several new Congress members who did not vote for Pelosi for a host of reasons. Some feel like they needed someone new, they needed fresh blood. It's kind of something that we've been hearing, especially in the Democratic Party. There's sort of this divide in the Democratic Party over where leadership should be coming from, whether it should be this younger, more progressive generation, or should they just revert back to Pelosi, who has been speaker before, but is still one of the most well-known and powerful Democratic leaders today. You had mentioned some of the agenda items that Nancy Pelosi had and the Democrats as well. Chief among them is reopening the government. And Mm -hmm. there's still no consensus on what's going to happen with that. Democrats do not want to give the president the funding for the border wall. They're going to pass a bunch of legislation to fund the federal departments, but that's really going to go nowhere. It's going to be a non-starter in the Senate because they've said they're not going to take anything up unless the president supports it. This shutdown is going on almost two weeks now, and it really doesn't look like there's going to be a resolution anytime soon, as both sides seem to have really dug into their own chances. The president unwilling to sign on to anything that doesn't include funding for his border wall, the $5 billion that he's demanded. But at the same time, Democrats in the House have are deciding to vote. They're going to be voting on two bills that would reopen the government. It would essentially fund most agencies through the end of the year, but would fund DHS just into next month to allow time for more discussion over the border wall. But at this point, the president has said that he's not even willing to sign on to that, that he wants it all done all at once. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that he would not bring the House bills forward in the Senate if the president did not support them. So we're kind of stuck in this limbo of no one being willing to to compromise. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of federal workers aren't receiving payment for the work they're doing or are out of work for the time being. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting time, the dynamics that are going to play out, because the House is going to pass a bunch of stuff that are going to be non-starters in the Senate. I know they want to address a lot of corruption stuff aimed at the president. It's not going to happen in the Senate. They want to address a lot of climate change issues issues, it's not going to happen in the Senate. So the Democrats have to find a lot of common ground and things that they can work on to put more pressure on Republicans and the president to play ball. So it's going to be crazy this next year. It's a line that Pelosi has to watch carefully, where she needs to insist on the Democratic priorities and make sure that she is still upholding the values of her party and standing firm on what many Democrats think that she should be doing, which is pushing back against the Trump administration. But at the same time, she is faced with working with a Republican majority Senate and with a Republican president. And she does have to ensure that when they are looking at legislation, something that they put forward has to be able to get through. And whether that's infrastructure, which tends to be a topic that can be somewhat bipartisan, or even drug prices, that's maybe something that there could be some bipartisan agreement on. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So the new Congress is being sworn in. All of this is happening in the backdrop of the partial government shutdown, which seems to really have no end in sight. Government workers are really going to start feeling it pretty soon when the checks that are affected by it are going to go through and be missing money. Uh, Miranda, really quick, what are some of the other things that are being affected by the shutdown? Well, the backlog of immigration cases is getting bigger. More than 300 immigration judges have been furloughed, meaning many immigration courts are closed and the massive backlog of cases is going to continue. So this is shutdown is hampering his own issues. I know it's so crazy. And it's such it's one of the main things there that's going on. And I mean, nobody wants to work on really making a deal. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. 
a really interesting story that started developing this week was that of Paul Whelan. He was just caught in Russia and he was arrested. And the Russian Federal Security Service said that he was caught during an espionage operation. They're accusing him of being a spy. It's an interesting story. His family is saying that he's not a spy. He didn't do it. We don't really know too much about what's going on there because the Russian officials haven't said that much. He has a spotty military record, which a lot of people say that automatically excludes him from being used as an intelligence officer. So there's so many twists and turns. It's very interesting. We spoke to Kristen Seamus. She's a reporter for the Detroit Free Press. And we started off by talking about what's the latest in his case. He has a Russian lawyer now, and we'll also find out what exactly he was doing in Russia. We know that he was indicted on espionage charges on Thursday, and that's from Russia's Interfax News Agency that first reported it. And then he now has a Russian lawyer who was appointed by the Russian government to represent him. Bail was requested for him, but he'll remain in custody at least until February 28th. His lawyer told reporters if he is convicted, he'll serve up to 20 years in prison. He has a twin brother who has been making some of the media rounds and obviously advocating for him. The family has said, you know, he's not a spy. We don't know if it's a case of wrong place, wrong time, anything like that. But he traveled to Russia on December 22nd, supposedly to help a friend from the Marines who was getting married in Moscow. That's what his brother told me when I talked to him a couple of days ago. David Whalen said that he is absolutely certain that his brother is innocent. They are twin brothers and they grew up in Michigan uh, in the Ann Arbor area. He insists that his brother was just there to help a friend. Paul apparently was a world traveler. He traveled for business. He traveled for pleasure. He loved visiting other countries and, and going all over the world. And his brother said that he'd been to Russia multiple times and that when his friend was getting married there, he asked Paul if he would travel with his family to Russia and help them get around because it can be difficult to navigate and figure out where you have to go when you don't speak the language. And apparently Paul was at least partially fluent in Russian. He had a Russian social media account and he he did have this affinity for Russia. And as you said, he traveled there a few times. It's kind of a confusing, mysterious story. They said that he was caught during an espionage operation but a lot of people are saying he doesn't necessarily fit the profile he was in the military but he got discharged there are a lot of contradictions and among them is that he did get a court-martial he was arrested while he was working for the marines and he was charged with larceny he got a bad conduct discharge in 2008 and was court-martialed he passed bad checks and was found guilty of using someone else's social security number by the marine corps what are the other some of the other big ties that he has to russia i know we mentioned the social media he seemed to be a fan I, I know that there's been posts about president trump explain some of those things there's the big question of Maria Butina, who is a Russian national who was arrested here in the United States, and she pled guilty to conspiring to act as an agent for the Kremlin. She had been working for years to infiltrate American political groups, including the National Rifle Association. And some are speculating that Paul Whelan's arrest is an attempt by the Russians to orchestrate a trade, that perhaps what they want to do is take Paul Whelan into their custody and say, if the United States returns Maria Butina to them, they'll return Paul Whelan to us. That's an interesting notion, if that's at play. You guys have talked to a lot of people, and they say that you never know what Vladimir Putin is up to, but it's kind of an odd situation to detain this guy if you want to increase the relations between the U.S. and Russia. But maybe a spy trade could help trigger some of that stuff, I guess? It's very curious. It's really hard to say what's going on. And depending 
depending on the expert you talk with, you get a different response on what they think. What I found interesting was the statement that Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, made Wednesday from Brazil when he talked about Paul Whelan. And he said, and this is a quote, if the detention is not appropriate, we will demand his immediate return. That leaves it open to so much speculation right there. Absolutely. It's very lukewarm. It isn't a bold statement. It isn't saying we demand that this U.S. citizen be returned to us immediately. And that to me gave me pause. I really thought hard about that statement. The U.S. ambassador to Russia, John Hutzman, has been out there and he's uh, seen Paul. He's spoken to the family. He's getting involved at this point. Anything else we know about what we're trying to do to figure it out? I mean, it seems, as you were just saying uh, with Mike Pompeo, it seems like we're in the investigative phase on our end and trying to see exactly what was going on. He's being held at what is called La Fortovo Detention Facility in Moscow, and it's notorious for its deplorable conditions. And he was arrested on December 28th, which would be almost exactly a week ago. So he's been there for quite some time, and John Huntsman didn't get the chance to go talk to him until Wednesday. So he had been there for a long time without any American contact, which I'm sure had to be a little difficult for him to endure. Who knows what the conditions are in there and and how they're treating him and things of duress. So it's just such a mysterious thing, and we are trying to do our best to weed out the story and see what's going on, but things are just trickling out very slowly. They are. And that's the trick is trying to figure out exactly who this man is and what he was doing in Russia, if truly the family story is accurate or whether there was something more. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about Paul Whelan and his time in Russia and whether he was up to something out there. Kristen Seamus, reporter for the Detroit Free Press. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Vacations are over. It's time to get back to work, start paying attention again. And one of those things that is causing so much confusion is the exclamation point. People are increasingly using it in all of their emails and all of their text messages. They're, these two forms of communication are starting to blur together. And people are freaking out about how much or how little people are using the exclamation points. They're confused when you're too excited or when you're not excited enough and it's hard to read what the meaning behind some of these texts or emails is. We spoke to Katie Binley. She's a personal tech reporter for the Wall Street Journal to talk about why the exclamation point is making so many people freak out. This has, I mean, been for years now that people have just been using exclamation points more in text and in email. People worry about being misconstrued. And so you have this inflation of the exclamation point where it's being used all over the place in a variety of contexts. And it no longer means I'm excited or enthusiastic right now. You know, it can often mean I'm just trying to be friendly or I'm just trying to be sincere. But because it has so many different meanings, it can just cause confusion when there's not one. People can read into it a lot. You know, if they send a note and they get one back that doesn't have any exclamation points, some people feel overwhelmed if they see too many. You've talked to a lot of people about how they use it and how it impacts them when they're reading those emails and texts. I'm guilty of every single one of these things. Part of it is there's been a blurring of lines between email and text because we see a lot of it on our phones. So an email is almost as equal to a text. A lot of times you feel a sense of friendship with your boss and your managers. And yeah, you want to be nice. You want to be cordial. You want to be that same bubbly person you are in person. The only way to do that is with an exclamation point a lot of times. And I've been in that situation where you send something to somebody with a few exclamation points just to show the exuberance that you want to convey. And yeah, it's they'll 
shoot back something really curt, really short, and they might not mean it that way. And that's like the hardest thing to really square away. I definitely think you're right that a lot of people, they're communicating with their superiors and their colleagues in a variety of different ways that are obviously all digital, but you might sometimes text with your boss. And so there is this email used to be more formal. And now between email, text and Slack, I do think things have gotten a little bit more informal, at least in some working environments. One of my favorite examples you point out is you spoke to someone who said, I was trying to convey four different thoughts. At the end of each one of them, they all had exclamation points. I run into this where I do the same thing and I'll totally rewrite an email so that the tone is set properly still, but I have the number of exclamation points that I'm using. A common theme that came up was this like strategic use issue and the editing and the revising that's like very punctuation based. There's a lot of thought that goes into this. And one young woman I spoke with said that she limits herself to one per email now and she just like chooses <laughs> where smart. it's going to go yeah. and what's the best spot. But she just <laughs> had a situation where she was using a lot of them and was like, "Ooh, this doesn't really seem like how everybody else in my office communicates. So she scaled back, but she was like, I still want to be true to myself and right. my personality. And I am kind of a bubbly person. So having none would feel too cold and outside of her personality. And so that's where the anxiety she goes with sets just in. one. There's been some studies though about the usage of the exclamation point of who uses it more between men and women. Beyond that, just where people are using periods on their own does really seem insincere a lot of times. What, what have these studies said? One of the studies is actually back from, it's from like 2006. Right now that seems like forever ago, but it was interesting because it, it mostly focused on what women are intending when they use them because a lot of research has shown that women do use them more often than men. What they found is the, the way they phrased it was markers of excitability. And they said that women are not necessarily using them as, quote, markers of excitability. They're often using them to convey friendliness or to sound genuine. So that was how they were using them. And I do think that usage in general has spread across genders because I talked to men who said that they worry about not coming off as genuine or cool, and that's why they're using them. And then in terms of just how the period comes across, I spoke with a professor who did a study about how people interpret periods in text messages specifically. So it wasn't looking at email or instant message, but just over text. And she did find that people, when they saw a period at the end of a text, they took it to be more abrupt than an exclamation point or no punctuation at all. There was something about the period in text messages that people found kind of abrupt. You do allude to it a little bit in the article, and I think it's totally appropriate in this age of emojis and whatnot. We need a new punctuation, something that's kind of halfway in between that could work. This guy I interviewed, he mentioned, uh, you know, he just wants something in between a period and an exclamation point. And actually, like several months ago, I think back in maybe spring, maybe April, Nate Silver tweeted saying that he too would like something in between and like something like 30,000 people either liked it or retweeted it where you're <laughs> like, okay, there's clearly a fair amount of people who also want something maybe not as intense as an exclamation point, but that's not as cold as a period. Right. What's funny about that is a couple people mentioned that they might use ellipsis instead, like you oh, know, the yeah. three dots. I use that all but the time. Other people I found on Twitter saying that they find those really ominous. So it's like, I don't know. You can't, it seems like you can't win. Katie Binley, personal tech reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.